Hey there, folks, and welcome to episode 60 of the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast. This is the show for anyone who works in fundraising and who wants ideas and a dose of encouragement to help them enjoy their job and raise more money, especially during the pandemic. And today, if you work for a hospice or any other small charity, or if you work in major gift, fundraising, individual giving, or if you're the leader of a team, I hope you're going to find this episode really helpful. I'm about to share an interview I recorded a few weeks ago with a fabulous fundraiser named Paul Courtney, who's the director of fundraising at Children's Hospice Southwest. Paul and I have created a new series of free training films called Hospice Fundraising Growth Strategies Now and After the Pandemic. As I say, the films are completely free, and whether you work for a hospice or not, you can get your free copy from the episode notes to this podcast, which are on my website, which is brightspotfundraising.co.uk. So if you look on the podcast section of the website for the notes for either episode 59 or episode 60 of the podcast, you'll be able to click on the link and get hold of the series of five short films into your inbox These are films which Paul and I use to unpack the clear strategies to help you raise funds through events, through corporate partnership fundraising, through individual giving and more during and after the pandemic. So I really hope you enjoyed today's episode in and of itself. And if you do, please do go and check out these free films where we can give you more tactics and in more detail. I always leave my conversations with Paul feeling encouraged and just excited about fundraising. And the same was definitely true for me at the end of this conversation. I really hope you find it helpful too. In terms of high net worth individuals, I know that that also is an area where the community in the Southwest has stepped up and been really generous. Just top line, what, I mean, I'm guessing a a key, the theme of, of great stewardship and great relationships is going to carry on. But in terms of tactically how you've applied that philosophy to major donor and or trust fundraising, what would you say? Well, I think it's quite interesting because we began some work on these areas before the pandemic, um, and we're beginning to look at how we worked and stewarded um, both individual major donors and and trusts as well. Um, and, And so much of that began to pay dividends immediately because at the heart of both of those areas it will come as no surprise is is great stewardship and 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 great relationship and with our trusts we worked very hard very fast um to do a lot of work on um unrestricting gifts that may have been already given and, and having really open and honest conversations and saying look this is where we are this is how we're mobilizing our care you had given us this money to do something in the building we ain't doing anything in the building <laughs> for the next year or so. Um, you know, we are taking our hospitals out right across the peninsula. If you want to go with us on that journey, we'd love to use that funding. If you don't, that's cool, <laughs> but we want to give you that chance. Um, and obviously we saw some great responses to that. Um, we saw some great responses just to those general conversations with funders. You know, this is where we are. This is how we're doing. Um, this is our situation. You've seen the accounts, you know the books. This is what we're doing, you know. Um, and, and that was great. We've seen trust income um, at about 25% over the, the, the pre-pandemic budget that we set. And with individual major donors, we'd we'd already made the decision to begin to change our approach to that, um, particularly given the context of the Southwest. Um, 
and that um you know we didn't have a specific major donor fundraiser um, and 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 our trust role just focused on trust and and our individual heads of fundraising within the three hospice sites began to take on that responsibility for really understanding and nurturing and developing relationships with major donors because we know that individuals have those strong affinities with their local hospice um so we began to really take that focus and interestingly we applied that same logic with our um with our individual giving program more generally so um we began to do some testing in terms of segmentation of our database more broadly with our autumn newsletter last september so um just really simple things like anybody in cornwall um had the cover letter with the newsletter signed by the head of care from our Cornwall hospice talking about things that we were doing in Cornwall, in Devon the same, in Bristol the same. And just that simple segmentation gave that local connection and local contact in the context of the wider whole. So applying that to major donors as well, obviously had a real sense of success. But for the donor, they also had that sense of value in having personal contact with the head of fundraising for their local hospice. It wasn't being pigeonholed and being dealt with by the major donor fundraiser or the high value giving manager. There was something really quite powerful about having that senior relationship and that senior contact with the head of fundraising for their local hospice. Mm. And, and we've seen that really beginning to deliver results, really beginning to have regular contact with some of those key donors and those potential donors, um, wanting to find out more, talking about events that are coming up, um, talking about what they might do. Um, and, and just for them, from a donor point of view, having that personal point of contact that's relevant for them, um, which has worked really well. Yes, so there's a, a quite deliberate change in approach and the way things are organised internally. In terms of, I mean, that is extra effort, certainly initially, to decide to do it differently. In terms of it paying off, you're able to, does an example spring to mind of where, uh, because you were working this way, it really seemed to help get a good result? Absolutely. Um, and there are several examples at varying levels. And I think that's always the wonderful context with this, isn't it? That, you know, for all of us, we have different levels of what a major gift and what a big gift is. Um, and particularly within um, our organisation and the sort of bedrock of community support that we've enjoyed for years and years, you know, very often our levels of major gifts might seem quite low compared to others. Um, but we had a wonderful um interaction you know having made this change and having had those relationships with the heads of fundraising and um, you know there was direct contact with a donor that lived only literally a mile or two away from our hospice site down in cornwall who you know who had some phone calls had some chats and then sent in a wonderful big gift far bigger than she'd ever given before um and then continued that stewardship journey continued just having chats um, you know, being very clear, you know, don't don't send me anything. I don't need reports. I don't need all those things. But it would be lovely to just have a chat to see how you're getting on as the year goes on. And that's wonderful because that wouldn't have happened without that local relationship. And and, you know, in that beautiful informal context, 
we've now got this lovely donor stewardship with a local senior fundraiser and a local major donor who is being talked to and cared for in the way that she wants about something happening just down the road that she now cares for. Mm. And that's that's magic. Yeah, it really is. Congratulations to everybody um, on on managing to get more of that way of working happening. I guess a, a thought that's occurring to me is, well, this makes perfect sense. Surely any right-thinking charity all along would hope and presume that that would just happen. But of course, I've worked in charities for 21 years. I know that there's all kinds of um, psychological and organisational and yeah. structural and budgety reasons why in practice good sense doesn't necessarily happen as an automatic. I wonder if you could, if, if any of our listeners are thinking we would like to do that, but, but you know, X or Y is in the way or what were one or two of the barriers that needed to be solved in order to 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 structure it this way so that good sense prevailed so i think there's a couple of things isn't there and some of them are practical and some of them are cultural um and there's no easy way of saying it you've essentially got to take a sledgehammer to books um you know we did a load of work um again last year before the pandemic and um, coming into the 2020 21 financial year to really look at how we were coding income, how we were classifying income, how we were talking about major donors, how we were nurturing and segmenting. And that did take a lot of work, but it was so worth it um, to really go back and understand who are these people, not just the people that we've had flagged as major donor for years um, and have never given anything. Who are the people that, again, on the ground, we know our great supporters we know give either one off or cumulatively across the year big sums because those are the people that we need to create that sense of nurturing relationship with so there's you know there's quite a lot of practical stuff there in terms of doing the research doing the looking and looking to see whether the the processes we've got and the tags we've got are appropriate and i suppose the culture piece is linked to that because unless we take a sledgehammer to silos, we're not going to do that piece of work effectively because that process will be halted and stumped by someone going, oh, well, that's my pot or, oh, that's, that's, that's my donor or that's, we deal with that over here. And we, we, we had to attack that. Um, and we had to say, you know, and that maybe it's me, maybe I'm just a bit blunt. But one of the things I've said over the last couple of years is I don't care what pot it goes in. The reason we are here, the reason we are fundraising, the reason that we get out of bed in the morning is not to make sure the money goes in my pot. It's to make sure that the money gets to families of children with life-limiting illnesses so that when they don't have three nights sleep because of bed terming, become because of isolation, be, when they can't get food, that's what we do what we do, not, not so that the money goes in a pot. And, and when we begin to look at it from that point of view, those silos begin to disappear 
we begin to focus on what's really important and we begin to focus funnily enough back on then what the experience for the donor is like and what will work best to enable them to give in their way so so it's the process combined with that culture that says okay the this may have been the way we did it, but we know this is going to be better for the donor. And, and as we went through that journey, people came along with us. And Paul, uh, of course, these are all such uh, difficult, strange, ever-moving times. But I sense that uh, these efforts have paid off overall in terms of uh, big gifts coming in. How would you sum up the, the, the growth? Yeah, we've certainly um, seen an increase in the volume of big gifts and in, in several cases, the value too. Um, and that's, you know, that's come from people giving where they traditionally would have done fundraising instead. Um, and it's come as a result of those relationships being nurtured. And, and overall, we've seen our individual giving um, up somewhere around 150% of, of target for the year, um, which, you know, is is due in part to those to those bits of work on major gifts and that segmenting properly across the region. In terms of individual giving uh, at a lower level, five, 10, 20 pounds a month, again, on that other film, you unpacked the four or five reasons in your view why yes. the wildly successful appeal in December, most successful ever. We haven't got time for all of that, but just top line, could you talk about, you know, this willingness to do things slightly differently, the yeah. the, the risk-taking approach to innovate and so on. Yeah, so um, we got really fed up actually during the, the, the latter autumn months of the, of the appeals landing and denting our doormats with drudgery. Um, and we resolved to just do something a bit different and a bit fun. And, and, and it was a risk, it was something very different. You know, it wasn't a four page black and white 12 point text letter. It was a little tiny A6 four fold out campaign called Elves Needed. Uh, real fun, real play on Christmas. The entire thing had less than 150 words in it. And it was just a real piece of fun that had some great support with social media stuff and a little bit of radio. Um, and we had fantastic responses. Um, in, in fact, I've got some of the, the figures. We were looking at average gifts currently um, from the Christmas appeal of about £36. Um, response rates up from previous years. And overall, the Christmas campaign, before gift aid is added, is more than double what the Christmas campaign did two years ago. Um, so we saw some brilliant results. And and some great feedback and interaction, that wonderful white mail that you get back with donations. It's always great, isn't it? Um, and so many people just commenting on how they loved the fun, how they loved the the joy that, that was in this little envelope that landed and looked like just another Christmas card in amongst those that landed on your mat that day. Um, and it was just, it was a real exercise for us in terms of really channeling that hope that we as charities have to talk about the things that we can transform um and it's learning that we've taken forward you know we we're challenging ourselves now with a regular giving appeal that we're putting together why do we need more than 200 words how can we say this stuff in a punchy succinct but impactful way and how can we use good creative to support that 
Um, so yeah, that's been at the heart of our our growth with individual giving at the lower level. Asking for a start and not being afraid to ask, um, but also not making donors feel guilty if they can't respond. Um, but then doing it in a fun, joyful way, rather than the the doormat denting drudgery that we've come to expect. Yeah. And of course, you know, all different charities ha- have a different brand and, and different kinds of feelings they want their supporter to associate with them. So, you know, the creative treatment you've gone for is is not going to suit lots of other charities. But the heart of what we're saying is a willingness to try some different things, to see it from the donor's point of view and try to give them more of what they might be interested in. And I think we you and I were speaking earlier about uh, a wonderful talk given by Davinia Batley at our breakfast club for fundraising leaders the other day. And she shared with that audience some really wonderful fundraising strategies that have come off and resulted in wonderful income for her charity become. But I was saying the heart of that story that Davinia told is actually not about any of the fundraising tactics. It's about the culture that she as a leader and her colleagues right from the start decided in March 2020 in these difficult times we just have to get the culture right and that's not always easy but let's decide how we're going to be as leaders and as a team and one of those elements was this willingness to keep trying to accept we won't get everything right all the time in these difficult problems we're having to solve but a willingness to keep learning keep testing and to be okay with that and in the films you made for hospices we've been discussing today, um, you mentioned a similar kind of culture value at your charity. Just before we finish this interview, top line, could you tell us anything about the value of being a learning yeah. team, a learning organisation? Because if you don't have that, it's ever so hard to innovate the way you do individual giving. But how have you done that? If you could just mention one or two of the ideas. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I loved uh, listening to Davinia the other day because um, that, that whole culture of test and learn and grow rather than try and fail is just so much more supportive and so much more um, inclusive uh, as, as a culture. And and we've certainly been, been been doing that over the last year or two, um, and certainly throughout the pandemic. Um, and I think some of the, just a couple of the things that we've been doing in terms of that leadership and culture um, space is about being fallible ourselves as as leaders and as and as managers, um, showing that we don't always get it right as well. That we test and we learn and we grow as a result as well. We haven't got all the answers. Um, so so there's that real sense of you know just being real actually um but i think the other element that we've really taken to heart and is already showing huge huge benefits is about carving out time for learning about being intentional with our time as a team so um on the first monday of every month uh, we have a meeting that says start the month as you mean to go on and it's our whole region-wide team on a zoom that starts with celebrating good stuff to share with the team the brilliant things that are happening. Tell us about the, the great group that did that. Tell us about the results of this activity. Let us know what's coming up. As a group, let's inspire one another to really start the month as we mean to go on. And then in the middle of every month on a Wednesday afternoon, we carve out uh, a three-hour afternoon 
as a team intentionally for learning. Obviously, there's a benefit in terms of those touch bases, but there's time for learning. There's time to look at particular topics and there's time to then break out into groups to really explore and devise and come up with campaign delivery tactics that feed through into what's happening in the next couple of months. Um, And that's been brilliant, both in terms of team feeling really cohesive, bearing in mind that I've got three teams split across three hospice sites. So to bring us all together as one big team, that's a really valuable thing to do. Um, But two, to just have that real focused, invested time for learning together um, really helps to build that culture, knowing that we've all got more to learn, that we can all come and get something that will improve our fundraising together as a team. Yeah. And, you know, I think having a key value being that of learning has always been a smart thing to do Uh, because otherwise basically the saw just gets blunter and blunter if all you're ever doing is is saw but if you take time away to sharpen that saw maybe you could get twice as twice as efficient at doing whatever job you're trying to do if I don't stretch the metaphor too far but I think very few people would argue with the notion that change continues to speed up in politics at a local level in economics in technology or let alone the pandemic everything's going faster and faster so the one thing i think we we just have to kind of program into our approach to our job is being willing to carry on learning new ways to solve the new versions of the challenges that are coming to us and interestingly there isn't time to talk about this this today, but the new opportunities that are coming, for instance, during a pandemic in different ways you can help your kinds of supporter want to care and want to give. That's a whole nother topic for another film, uh, another interview. But uh, for today, Paul, thank you so much for making that lovely set of training films anyway for hospices and small charities. And thank you for this uh, podcast interview in, in which you've given some highlights and some new ideas as well. I look forward to catching up with you very soon about whatever you're doing next in terms of fundraising to deal with 2021. Best of luck to your team as they carry on handling those challenges. But for now, Paul Courtney, thank you for joining me on the podcast and I will see you very soon. Cheerio. Thanks, Paul. Bye-bye. Well, I hope you found Paul's ideas and examples were helpful. If so, do remember to subscribe to the podcast today so that you never miss an episode. And as I mentioned earlier, if you did find these ideas helpful, then I promise you'll get even more ideas and inspiration from the new training video series we've created, especially for hospices and other small charities. It's called Hospice Fundraising Growth Strategies During and After the Pandemic. And in it, we have time to go into more depth on lots of things that hospices and small charities can do at the moment to help raise funds in spite of the pandemic. It includes more detail on corporate partnerships fundraising, on events, on leadership and on how to create an energised fundraising culture as well as on individual giving and it's completely free for any fundraiser to access so if you'd like to get your copy just go to the notes for episode 59 or episode 60 which is on the podcast section of my website and the website is brightspotfundraising.co.uk and then just click on the link and we will send you those five films. Just before we finish, I'd like to say a massive thank you to everybody who's been getting in touch and everyone who's been spreading the word about this podcast 
with colleagues and on social media. I really appreciate your help. Paul and I would love to hear what you think about this episode. We're both on LinkedIn and on Twitter, Paul is at Paul Kairos. And that second word is K-A-I-R-O-S at Paul Kairos. And I am at Woods underscore Rob. Finally, thank you so much for choosing to listen to the Fundraising Bright Spots show. And I wish you the very best of luck with your fundraising.